Hello there. Good evening and welcome to that Haunt Guy podcast. Your home of hauntings, true crime, maybe the odd cult and well... Anything else on that spooky side of life? My name is Mark and I'll be your disembodied voice of a host this evening. The year is 1506 and a horse-drawn stagecoach is slowly making its way along a quiet coastal road in southwest Scotland. Suddenly, a shadow of what looks like a human form causes the horse to rear on its hind legs. The coach comes to an abrupt halt and, out the window it's not just one shadow that can be made out, but many, surrounding the coach. A thumping noise comes from above before the body of the driver is thrown and dragged away, lifeless. The shadows advanced on the coach and open the doors. They can just be made out. People, covered in filth, missing teeth and scars covering their bodies. But scarier yet, they are animalistic. They take out crudely made blades and clubs and make their way into the carriage. They force out the poor souls inside the stagecoach, and they are then advanced upon, being bludgeoned and cut. They are then dragged to the steep cliff edge, and if they haven't already died from their wounds, the last thing they would see is jagged rocks, hurtling towards them out the darkness as they are thrown off the edge of the cliff to the water's edge below. These unfortunate individuals, have just become the latest victims of the cannibalistic Sonny Bean clan. The legend of Sonny Bean all began with one Alexander Sonny Bean, who was said to be born sometime around the 16th century in East Lothian, Scotland. Son to a rather poor family with a father who dug ditches for a living, the conditions of the home, as were the family relationship, said to be rotten at best. When Bean turned 12, he was expected to enter into the family business, just as his father, and his father, and his father had before him had done. Our friend Sonny, however, quickly realised that a life of manual labour was not for him. And although he tried to save himself in his father's eyes as the years went on, his father just began to resent him. Not only this, but it was said that Bean's father was an alcoholic, and that he was becoming increasingly abusive as the years went on, particularly in Bean's teenage years. Due to this, Sonny decided to leave his home and try to forge a life for himself. The result of this decision is one that no one, including himself, could have predicted. Now, many of the details of Sonny's life at this point are unclear. However, it was believed that he lived on the streets of Edinburgh for some time, and in this part of his life one day met a woman called Agnes Douglas, who was affectionately named by the locals of Edinburgh as Black Agnes. Now Agnes, it is said, shared Sonny's disdain for what was a normal working life of the time, and after a pauper's wedding, they decided to leave the city. This getaway was mostly brought on by the fact that our friend Black Agnes here didn't have this name for herself for no reason. No. You see, her full title to the locals was Black Agnes of the Dark, and the people of Edinburgh at the time would accuse her of being a witch. 
They would even go as far to say that she was involved in things like human sacrifices and the conjuring of demons. Now if you have listened to my episode on the Scottish witch trials, and if you haven't you should after this, you will know that it was not uncommon for those less fortunate in the community to be accused of such things as the locals wanted them to live as an outcast. Black Agnes, however, also didn't really help with these accusations as she was said to have a fiery tongue and would curse down anyone who would even get near her. So, with the risk of an impending hanging hanging over her head, <laughs> they decided to leave for the rolling hills of Galloway. As they made their way to southwest Scotland on foot, they realised the quickest and easiest way to get food and shelter would be to rob any unsuspecting person unlucky enough to cross their paths. The problem arose, however, that due to the accusations of our dear Agnes being a witch, word spread far and wide over Scotland that she was travelling the country with a man. The people of Scotland were told that if they were to show up at their inn, they should offer them lodgings so as Agnes did not lay a curse upon them, and then they should contact their local authorities. And if anyone were to pass them on the road and not be robbed, they were to alert the nearest authorities as soon as possible, as it was now believed Agnes was fleeing the accusations, and that proved, in their minds, she was truly a witch. This created a problem for Sonny and Agnes, as although they had money for food and lodgings from the people they robbed, after one close encounter with the authorities, they did not feel safe showing their faces in the towns and villages of southwest Scotland. And this meant there was one glaring issue they now faced. Starvation. And it is here, listeners, where it is rumoured that Sonny had his first taste of human flesh. You see, it is said that the witch Agnes actually convinced him that this was the logical solution. That it was them the people feared, so they might as well strike fear into their victims, while gaining much needed substance at the same time. It was also rumoured that this wasn't the first time Black Agnes had partaken in this, well, this unique form of dining. In fact, it was said that one of the many reasons she was accused of being a witch was because of her taste for human flesh. Sonny, who had never felt like he belonged in what most would call societal norms, as well as being enamoured with Agnes, apparently decided that she was right, and this was the turning point for how he would live out the rest of his days. They decided that to do this, they wouldn't want to draw any attention to themselves. So on the road, they would talk with lone travellers they would happen upon. They would subtly try to find out if they were from the area, if they had family and friends waiting on them and where they were headed to. If all of these things fell into the favour of Agnes and Sonny then, and only then, would they make their move to kill these poor souls. With Agnes standing behind them so they couldn't run away, she would use a blade and drive it into their backs, while Sonny was said to split their throats from the front. 
They would then drag the body to a secluded part of the woods and set up a camp for the evening, cutting off bits of their victim and cooking them over an open fire before consuming them over, well, what we can only imagine to be a delightful fireside chat. Could it get any more romantic for these two? In the morning, they would wrap up any uneaten parts of the body to keep them going for as long as possible, as they tried to keep this feasting on human flesh to a minimum so as they did not rouse suspicions. They would then cover up any signs a camp had been built there the night before, and dispose of the remains in such a fashion it would look like the person had been mauled by a wild animal. Those Scottish wildcats can be so vicious. That sounds like a joke. I'm telling you, it's not. Google Scottish Wildcat if you don't believe me. They are savage. After several months of this kill-and-camp lifestyle, they found themselves on the South Ayrshire coast, between the town of Girvan, also the birthplace of yours truly, and the village of Ballantrae. While scouting the area for shelter, as well as potential victims, it was here that they happened upon a cave tucked away in the side of a cliff overlooking the ocean. And yes, I have been to this cave, but we'll get to that tale, don't you worry. What made this cave of interest to the two of them was that at the best of times the entrance was hard to see unless you went up a steep incline. And moreover, they realised that when the tide was in, it rose, so the entrance of the cave was inaccessible. The cave also had many side passages they could flee into if they were ever pursued, making it an almost perfect hideout, providing they could follow the tides and be inside the cave before high tide. With this discovery, they set to work in making this a more permanent abode for the two of them. And this is also when they took their crimes up a notch. They would spend most of their day in the cave and ventured out just when the sun was starting to go down, tide permitting of course. They would then climb the steep, thin path of the cliff beside the cave and wait by the dirt track road for lonely travellers to pass them by. They would then use their tried and tested methods to find out if the victim was local before killing them and dragging them back down the cliff and into the cave. Here they would strip the body, putting aside clothes and any possessions to the back of the cave, before hacking them limb from limb. They would only eat small portions at a time, and would store the rest of the body for later use to ensure they always had some substance. How they stored the body was by pickling it using seawater, which they had in abundance. They would use buckets that had washed up on the beach as well as barrels they had stolen from nearby farms. And they soon stacked the cave walls limb to limb with barrels of human flesh. Not long into their new cave-dwelling lifestyle, Agnes would become pregnant with her first child. From a young age, our favourite cannibal couple wasted no time including their daughter in their lifestyle, teaching them how to pickle the flesh the most efficient way to hunt and kill, and would even use them as decoys before ambushing their next victim. They had an extra mouth to feed now, of course, so they had to be less selective about who they killed. But they didn't stop here, however. Oh no. 
Agnes and Sonny would go on to have eight sons and six daughters. This was still not enough for them, however. Sonny would actively encourage his children to breed with each other, as he wanted to not just build a cannibalistic army, but a clan. This resulted in a further 18 grandsons and 14 granddaughters, bringing the total number of incestuous cannibals to 48, all of whom were raised to become the Bean Clan. Just as with their first child, they would all be incorporated into the killings, sometimes hunting in a large group and other times splitting into a small group to cover more ground and increase the chances of bringing home a kill. Over time, and with this many mouths to feed, of course people began to notice the disappearances. You can't keep evil on this scale hidden forever. Well, we've just found the tagline of this episode. The reports of missing people began to become so numerous indeed that the folks of the surrounding towns and villages began to realise. And this is when paranoia set in. This would result in these town folks spreading rumours of what was happening to those that had disappeared, and ultimately led to a spree of accusations. Now, these accusations may have been through fear, or just like with our witch trials, wanting to get rid of certain individuals. They ranged from completely plausible possibilities, don't know how I got that out, to just complete insanity. One very common rumour that became accusation around the towns and villages was that the local innkeepers were robbing and then killing the missing individuals. And, well, they wouldn't be far off if you liked to see view all while being stuffed inside a glass jar. The rumours became so widespread indeed that it led to many landlords closing their inns and leaving towns to find new jobs for themselves, out of fear of being lynched by a mob of fearful, angry townsfolk. Of course, Scotland is no stranger to folklore, and others would lay claim that the disappearances were the work of Kelpies, a mysterious creature who dwelled near lochs and rivers. And when they ventured onto land, they would take the form of a horse. Anyone unfortunate enough to come across these creatures would feel drawn to ride them, and once you climb onto their backs, they would then rush back into the water, taking you with them and dragging you under. And more tales would come of murderous, goblin-like creatures called redcaps. Oh, love folklore. These creatures would lure unfortunate souls off their paths and kill them for their coins. What they didn't know at this time was just how accurate that was, although what's scarier than a homicidal goblin was that it was a human capable of these things. One evening, the Bean Clan had split into separate groups and ventured out in the hunt as their food supplies were starting to run low. This is when one of the groups came across two people a husband and wife riding horseback. The group stalked them for a short time and quickly decided they would make easy targets. With this, they decided to ambush the couple. They emerged quickly from the bushes, causing the horse to buck the two off its back and take off into the trees. 
As the cannibalistic group advanced upon the two, they had not accounted for the fact that the man had both a sword and a pistol on his person, and he was ready to fight back. While he was preoccupied with fighting some of the group off, however, his wife was not so lucky. No. Right where she fell, some of the others from the Bean family had already set upon her. They held her down while another sliced open her stomach. The last thing she would have ever saw was her own organs being consumed by rabid cannibals as they pulled out her entrails and began feasting upon her. The husband, who was starting to tire at this point, was about to give up all hope of defending himself. This is when, when luck would have it, a larger group of travellers came upon the gruesome scene. The Bean family realised they would not be able to take on a group this large, especially when they were as famished as they were, and they took to the woods, taking with them any parts of the women they could carry, and leaving the man with his life. The scattered members of the Bean family had been warned by their mother and father never to come straight back to the cave if they were caught, in case they were followed. So over the next several hours they returned to their abode one by one. This left the man to collect the remains of his wife and make his way to the closest town to report what had happened to the authorities. The report being so disturbing in nature ended up at the ears of King James VI of Scotland, first of England. He was so saddened and enraged by the sheer number of disappearances, as well as the story of the man who had seen his wife being disemboweled in front of him, that he sent out 400 armed men along with bloodhounds to hunt down the cannibal clan. Without the dogs, the clan would have probably never been found. Unluckily for them, however, the bloodhounds quickly picked up on the bean scent and led the party to the cave's entrance. It is said from where they stood they could smell the pungent odour of rotting corpses and could even taste the metallicness of blood in the air. When they entered the cave they could see piles of clothes and jewellery, flayed skin drying on driftwood frames and body parts and barrels as well as hanging from the cave walls. When the party advanced further into the cave, they came across the entire clan, hiding in a cavern at the back. To their surprise, the cannibals did not try to attack them, and instead surrendered without a fight. This led to 47 members of the cannibal family being captured, bound in chains, and forced to walk back to Edinburgh, a distance of 91 miles to face their executions without trial. On the day of their deaths, first the executioners tied the women and children to stakes, however they were deliberately left alive for some time. This is because they were then forced to watch as the men had their hands, feet and genitalia cut off before being left to bleed out. King James apparently thought this fitting after seeing the dismembered bodies strung upon the cave walls. Fires were then lit where the women and children were tied, and the dismembered body parts were thrown into the flames as they burned alive, 
a fate that poor Agnes had initially left Edinburgh to avoid. It is said that Sonny Bean's final words were him screaming, It isn't over. It isn't over. Before passing away through severe blood loss. And with that, it brings an end to the chapter of Sonny Bean. But, my dear listeners, he was correct. It wasn't over. Well, maybe the cannibalism was. But not his family line. This is because you may recall, I said they captured 47 of the clan, leaving just one who didn't get caught that fateful night. The legend goes that this lone survivor of the Bean clan was Sonny's eldest daughter, Elspeth. Now, in the clan, Elspeth had apparently always hated their way of life. There's always one black sheep. And she saw this as her chance of finally having the normal life she had always longed for. You see, when the others were on their murderous rampage for their next meal, she would silently slip to the nearby village of Ballantrae and just watch life pass her by, wishing it was hers. It's said that her mother and father just thought she was terrible at hunting and, as a result, they would give her the worst parts of the body to eat, which probably just further made her want to leave this way of life. Elspeth is said to have fled to my wonderful hometown of Girvan and that she was taken in by a family in a home overlooking the sea. I guess she missed the view from her cave. In the garden of this home, legend has it that Elspeth planted a seed which took root and grew into a great tree. At the age of 17 she married and she had her son with her now husband and all seemed well and she could put her family's brutal past behind her. Unfortunately for her dear Elspeth, however, it wasn't meant to be, and her family's past connections were brought to light. This resulted in an angry mob stringing a rope to the very tree she had planted years ago, and she was hung to her death. This tree became known in local legend as the Hairy Tree, and it is said that if you stand in the spot where Elspeth once hung, you can still hear her body hitting against the trunk of the tree as she slowly swings back and forth. As for her widowed husband and son, not much information is out there on them. There is, however, one very interesting account. It goes that when Elspeth was caught, her husband and son managed to escape. And as her husband knew that they would also be killed by their association with Elspeth, it's said that they managed to buy passage or a charter to the New World, America to you and I. When they arrived there, they were established at one of the British colonies. This colony was none other than the colony of Roanoke. Now this is something I will definitely be covering in a future episode, but for those of you who don't know, the colony of Roanoke is one which completely disappeared. And to this day, not a soul on earth knows how or what happened to them. But that is a tale for another time. Although let me tell you, when I read that account, I got chills over my entire body. It's so creepy and so beautiful. I 
and Roanoke is one of my favourite mysteries and I can't wait to cover it. The existence of Sonny Bean is of course put down to history as legend. It is all speculation on if this cannibal clan really did exist. And if they did, did they really consume over a thousand corpses in the 25 year period they lived in that cave? As with all folklore that is passed down, we will never truly know what changed in the story and what is based in truth. I will be honest, for most of my life I was inclined to believe that there may be some truth to the legend, but it was probably closer to a fable. This all changed in recent years however, as I had a small experience of my own which now makes me inclined to believe the legend is true, and I would like to share that with all of you now. Myself and some friends were visiting our hometown and Sonny Bean's cave is only a 15 minute drive away, so we decided to go and have a little exploration for ourselves. Now let me tell you, the walk down is through a single person steep and muddy path and it took all of our might not to slip the whole way down. And when you get to the small beach at the bottom where the cave is situated, you would never really know where its location was unless you knew where to look, it is just that well hidden. It is neatly tucked into the cliffside, with a large boulder concealing the entrance to unknowing eyes. And once you clamber over this boulder, there it stands, the entrance to the supposed cannibal cave. When I stood there, I took a second to imagine what it would be like to see this as your last moments. A slit in the rocks that seems to envelop into complete darkness. Then I took my first steps into Sonny Bean's cave. When you first step in, you are in a large open cavern, and I was not exaggerating. Without torchlight, it is pitch black. Although of course, in the days of Sonny Bean and his family were said to occupy it, it would have been lit with fat from their victims, so you can only imagine how that would have smelled. Speaking of which, that is one of the other things that completely assaults your senses with the musky soil and dampness. Bats would also fly overhead, which is more than enough to unnerve anyone as the noise of it echoed up and down the entirety of the cave. As we slowly worked our way to the back, the walls would get gradually narrower and the roof of the cave would gradually slope downward. And let me tell you, I couldn't get the image of it caving in around me out my head. I have never experienced claustrophobia until then. The cave, however, definitely doesn't extend back as many claims say, but the ground below my feet was heavy with sediment and this, I believe, has piled up over the years and has blocked access to many of the old passageways that may have once existed. There was one extremely narrow passageway, however, that jutted off to the right about halfway up the cave and one of my friends I was with tried to squeeze himself through it. Unfortunately it proved too confined, and let me tell you it was absolutely terrifying to watch because I thought he was going to get stuck, and that would have been an interesting one to explain to the police and the coast guards. He did say however from his vantage point that the passageway appeared to open up on the other side, so the idea of additional passageways underfoot was certainly possible. What though, I hear you asking? 
happened that leads you to believe that the legend of Sonny Bean is true? Well, one of my friends I was with owns a metal detector, so we of course decided to take that with us and see what evidence of cannibals, if any, we could find. The three of us spent hours in the cave, which the conditions of which you weirdly adjust to faster than you would think. And we meticulously went over every inch of ground we could reach. We did find some odd bits of metal and the occasional energy drinks can. Pick up your rubbish, folks. But unfortunately, no solid evidence of the hoard of items the beans would have collected from their victims were found. That was until we went outside to the cave. I went to have a sit down and a cup of tea and just watch the waves roll in after being in that cave for about three hours and my other friend came with me. The other one said he was just going to run the metal detector for a few minutes around the entrance. A few minutes turned into about 20 maybe when we heard him shouting for us. The way he was shouting we thought he had slipped on a rock and done himself an injury because we couldn't see him so we took off running across the beach to near the cave entrance. When we got closer, he popped his head up, like a meerkat. And he had the biggest smile on his face, so thankfully we knew he wasn't hurt or that he hadn't been attacked by ghostly cannibals of the past. Kind of sad that didn't happen because that would be a great addition for this podcast. But alas, no. What did happen, however, was that when we got to him, In his hand, he was holding a small, round, silver object. A coin. And this coin was stamped with the date 1603. The same date as when King James sent his men to capture the beans. And this is the same coins the bean family's victims would have been carrying in their pockets. I believe the chances of finding this coin are second to none. So now I am a firm believer the legend of Sonny Bean is real. But, my dear listeners, I will leave you to make up your own mind, as we have now come to the end of our time together this evening. I will post a picture of the coin on Instagram for you to see for yourselves, of course. Oh, and if you are in the mood for a good horror movie, then you should go and watch The Hills of Eyes. It was inspired by our dear Sonny Bean after all. And with that, I would just like to thank you all for listening with me this evening. I of course have been Mark, or That Haunt Guy. You can feel free to follow me on this podcast for any future ones, and on Instagram, at That Haunt Guy, all one word. And even feel free to share me with your friends. But apart from that, have a wonderful evening, a night filled with supernatural curiosity. And watch out for that entity behind you. And as always, stay spooky. Until next time.